I'm really excited this afternoon to welcome Sunday Shepherd, Applied Reservoir Management and Exploration Manager for the Mid-Continent at Chevron. Um, Sunday and I are going to talk about the circuitous route that she took going into the oil and gas industry, the culture and values at Chevron that have kept her in the organization for over 20 years now, her learnings over the last six months during the COVID pandemic and the importance of empathetic leadership, and her next move as General Manager of Corporate Strategy and Sustainability. Sunday, I'm really excited to, to be speaking to you today. Welcome. Then starting right at the beginning, Sunday, did you always know that you wanted to study geology? And did you know that that would always lead into a career in the oil and gas industry? Amy, not at all. I started out very focused in liberal arts and uh, beyond the typical science classes in high school, I really didn't know anything about science careers or the energy industry. I hadn't had exposure or role models in that space growing up. My strongest role models growing up were my mom, who was a single working mom who uh, worked her way up from being a teacher to a principal and uh, working with the area schools. She was very driven and hardworking and self-reliant and had this really strong support network of other women and men that she worked with. And so that was a great role model for me in terms of work ethic and uh, being able to continue achieving and growing in an industry. And then my other role model growing up was Connie Chung. And Connie Chung was a, a female who was a reporter. She was a broadcast journalist reporting on a wide range of topics. She traveled and I read about Connie Chung in a book at a young age. And that led me to be, want to become a broadcast journalist. So I started out as a mass communications major in college and ended up with a, a fairly circuitous path to earth science and to, to industry from that mass communication start. I think it never really was as exciting or fulfilling as I'd wanted it to be because after a few years in the mass communication space in college, I decided not to go back and uh, was a full-time waitress on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, a string of barrier islands there for a couple of years, just kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. And I think I learned that I did not want to be a waitress forever. So I needed to finish <laughs> my degree in something. And so I went to the closest university that was around and uh, it turned out it was a historically black university. So that was a draw for me because I was able to get a scholarship, a minority presence scholarship there, which was great to help me with funding. And uh, I took a science class as a mandatory class that I needed. And it was an environmental science class. And that class was taught by a professor who had worked at Exxon for 20 some years and then retired and uh, was teaching. And that ex-Exxon guy came to me and he's like, hey, you're really smart. You're really passionate about this space. You're really interested. What's your major? And my major was English at the time because this university did not have a comm department. And he ended up uh, talking with me about the industry and the opportunities and what could lie ahead. And so I switched my major really quickly. And uh, wasn't quite sure how it would work out, but figured it would be nice to have some broader options. So that's a little bit of the story of what led me to earth science. That is very circuitous indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say that made you make the switch? Because, you know, it was kind of a big decision even at that stage to do that. What was it that he talked about that made you think, yeah, that, you know, that could be what works for me? So one, he was really encouraging. He focused on me and said, 
you're smart. I really like when you answer the, ask these questions. And for me, that personal attention and encouragement was really important. And then he invited me, this sounds a little silly, but he invited me to Thanksgiving lunch with the department. And it was, there were seven students full-time in the department and four faculty. And we sat down and we had turkey and stuffing and pies and all the fixings. And it just felt like such a, a special family connection. And I felt like this group of people really cared about each other. And that's something that I did not get from the big program in the university that I had attended and left. And uh, that's something that I always look for going on through my career is that family feel. So it was really that kind of small moment with that professor inviting me to that lunch and really getting excited. I was like, hey, these are my people. I resonate with them. We really have a strong connection. It, that's, it's amazing the impact that educators can have just on kind of a, you know, on a chance meet, I guess, that happened is fantastic. It sounds like obviously there was a huge amount of passion from you going into it and, you know, right at the start of what became your career. But what is it about the industry now that keeps you interested, keeps you excited, keeps you wanting to work in it every day? So I'll go back a little bit, you know, after finishing my undergrad degree in geological sciences from Elizabeth City State, I went to grad school at UT and was very focused on industry as I was finishing undergrad, went to UT because of the industry connections and always planned on finishing my master's and getting a job as soon as possible. And the recruiter from Chevron asked me a question to describe my dream job. And it was a really another very pivotal kind of small moment of connection. So setting the stage a bit, this was the late 90s. Oil prices were around $20 a barrel. Uh, companies were recognizing the demographic challenges and were still hiring. And I had interviewed with a lot of companies and was pretty good at most of the typical questions. So when the Chevron recruiter asked me to describe my dream job, I uh, gave an answer that I guess sounded okay. But that question really haunted me, Amy. I thought about it and thought about it. And a couple of days later, I emailed the guy back and said, hey, I need to refine my answer after some broader thinking. And I, thinking about the answers that I had to that question are, are really still relevant to me today. So I'll share with you what my answer was. I told Rob, the recruiter, that I wanted to be part of a diverse workforce. I had interned with a small independent the summer before, had an absolutely great experience, loved the work, was good at it, but I wanted more diversity with the people I was working with, the experiences they were bringing to the table, and also in the work because I was very focused on Kansas and Oklahoma conventionals, and I wanted more global opportunities. I had also had an experience in grad school where I'd made what I felt was a very logical suggestion to the department chair, and I'd been told, don't rock the boat Sunday. And that was so frustrating. So I wanted to go into an organization where it was okay to rock the boat sometimes. I wanted opportunities to travel, to experience new things. I wanted access to tools and technology to solve tough problems. And I, I wanted all of that to come together to do something that made the world better. And when I think about that response that brought me to into Chevron in 99, 2000, that's still all of the things that keep me here today because all of those things are still bringing this dream job concept to life. And it's always really exciting and it's evolving, but those core things that are exciting to me and, and brought me to the table are still here with us.
Yeah. And is that something then that's shared within the values at Chevron? Obviously, you've been there then since that meeting or since that interview for the last 20 years. What is it that keeps you in that organization specifically? Yeah. So at Chevron, you know, coming in kind of any job was a job, but I was really drawn by the Chevron way where we talk about how we work together, how we treat each other, how we interact um, with the communities where we're working, what we value. And, And those values resonate with me personally and really tie back to that dream job concept. And, you know, working at Chevron has been that dream job for me. I've had the opportunity to travel the world. I turned 30 when I was living in Venezuela and then had my third child in Singapore when we first met. I've had the opportunity to work on really complex things. We do difficult as an industry and uh, provide the energy that powers the world, which is incredibly important and exciting and fulfilling. And breaking the rules is certainly a thing in work and in life now. I don't know if you've read uh, any of Francesca Gino's work, um, but she writes about rebel talent and challenging the status quo. And it doesn't have to be in big ways, but those small ways can really make a difference. So I think all of those things are continuing to keep me here. We, we're continuing to evolve as both a company as and as an industry. And it's just every day, you, you never know what new challenges you're going to face. And I love the focus on how we're going to tackle those challenges, bringing out the best of everyone that we have around us, that real collaborative feel is something that's very motivating to me. And that's kind of how we work at Chevron. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons we're having a conversation today is because you are part of the 275 Influential Women Leaders Oil and Gas Council list. And you mentioned, you know, one of the parts that was most important within a dream job was around the idea of a diverse workforce. And I wonder, as you were going into Chevron in 99-2000, was that the case? Um, or was it something that you wanted to um, increase, I guess, as you were going in? I think for me, coming in to Chevron at that period 20 years ago, I looked around and I saw people from many different countries. I had the opportunity to work with people from many different countries and backgrounds, and I really appreciated that. You know, from a gender diversity perspective back then, at a worker level, it was pretty good. My first boss was a female and wasn't a big challenge to me. Uh, Really, the biggest challenge that I saw at that period was how much younger I felt than everyone else. But the gender and racial diversity seemed pretty good at the time from my perspective coming in. You know, now 20 years down the line, Amy, we've made huge strides in that space. I love the conversations that we're having now. We're really getting to the point where we're we're having tough conversations with each other, which help bring about the empathy that's needed to really appreciate other people's perspectives. What do you think still needs to be done and who is driving it and who should be driving it? So that's a great question. So I think there's still a lot that needs to be done. You know, we, when I look around at my level now, there are not enough not enough women. When I look above, there are not enough women. And, you know, so what we're really focused on is building the pipeline of people to advance. But I think there's opportunities beyond that. Um, One of the things that I was just having a conversation 
about with a group of my female colleagues was uh, what, what we would like for people to know, um, senior leaders to know about diversity and inclusion. And um, one, one of the things that's, that's a little bit tough to talk about is, is the weight that women feel, minorities feel coming into a role when you finally get a seat at the table, that, that weight or that pressure that you feel when you're out in front, you have a seat and you better not mess it up and ruin it for everyone else behind you. And I think there's a real opportunity to better support those in front, to recognize the weight that, that is felt because it's, it's not felt by those in the, in the majority, at least to that extent. And really have it be on all of the leaders to ensure that those of us who are out in front are are enabled to be successful that we have we have strong supportive networks we uh, are are given opportunities to stretch and grow given feedback that we need to to continually improve um, but aren't feeling that tremendous pressure on our shoulders of uh, messing it up for everyone else behind you. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I think about is there's really, there's really no, no magic formula. You know, it's, we need both the diversity and, and the inclusion. And um, I think the inclusion really comes about from listening, asking, and, and doing. And so one of the conversations that I was having was around, um, it was with a male report that I have, and he's like, yeah, I, this is a really tough conversation, so I tend to just back away from it because I'm afraid of saying something stupid. And uh, so at Chevron, we talk about the, the FOSS, or the fear of saying something stupid, and um, how you can, get over that and and have it be a productive conversation. And I think with, with some trust and with acknowledging that we're coming into those conversations with positive intent, all trying to grow and learn, you can get to the point where you can you can say something and maybe it doesn't come across the right way. But but I could say to you, all right, Amy, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. I'm not sure how this is gonna come across. So so please let me know what would be a better way to say it? Let's get to the point where you understand where I'm coming from. I think really moving to be able to have those conversations as an organization makes us all better and helps us understand where we're all coming from. For sure. What, what advice would you give women then who are either entering the industry today or, or those who are already in it? So I think uh, one is to, to form a network of, of colleagues um, who have a, a wide range of perspectives that you can, you can test things on, you can have that, that circle of trust, but make sure that that circle of trust is, is broad and varied and, and gives you those different perspectives. Um, of, of course, we all, we all work hard, focus on the job that you're currently in, but I think uh, being being really clear about what you what you want is really important, especially for women. Um, one of the the conversations that I had recently was around assumptions that are made about working women or working mothers, um, and what they 
can or can't or should or shouldn't do or take on. And um, I, I think it's really important for women to, to be very deliberate and proactive about those conversations um, to make sure that they aren't counted out for any opportunities. I think uh, we're, we're leaning forward in that, in that uh, space, but there are occasionally leaders who will make those kind of split-second assumptions about people, and uh, it can have an outsized impact on people's careers down the line. I'm always amazed. I don't have children yet, and I'm always amazed at my at my colleagues and peers that that do and and manage to balance it, even with just you know one child. It changes the the goalpost slightly in terms of you know the time you have and and how you you live your kind of week. You have three. <laughs> um, how how have you kind of managed to to find that that balance? I guess that work life balance. You know, I think the most important thing is to picking a great partner um, <laughs> who 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 handles their share of the weight and and can support you. And you know, that's that's been the the best enabler for me is is having someone to share my life with who uh, appreciates what what I love about my work. Um, and we can we can share the load at home. And uh, you know, I have a role model who said you can also do it alone. But uh, it's it's really it's really important to have that support system. You know, other things I think are recognize the example you're setting for your kids. And you know, I have to kind of block out listening to some of the moms or some of the the commentary that I get from colleagues about what they view from their perspective as right. You know, Amy, I was thinking about this yesterday. Gosh. I was pregnant with my first child and this guy at my work said to me, well, I think you'll be okay to come back to work after one child, but if you have two, you're going to have to quit. And at the time being pregnant with my first, I just kind of thought, hmm, yeah, that was your situation. My situation is different and keep your thoughts to yourself and all of those things. But where I really got a bit excited is when I got a new role with three children and I replaced him in a role and I got a little feisty and I was like, <laughs> oh, I can't wait to come back in and be like, hi, here I am. I now have still here. I have three children and I'm doing this awesome job that you just did. And I did talk to him about it later and he didn't remember saying it at all but I think it's not letting people make those decisions for you you know figuring out what works for you having a relationship with your family so that they know why you're working hard and when you're gonna have family focused time but when you're working you're doing good things for your family as well so you know it's a very personal situation for everyone we all figure out what works and continue to flex and adjust but I do have to tell myself when I am having to prioritize work over family, which sometimes happens, you know, I'm setting an example for my kids of what a hardworking, smart person, female can achieve and what that takes and what's possible. And I have to sometimes remind myself of that when I'm missing some of the small moments at home. Well, I'm so glad you did say something to him. That must have been a nice, <laughs> a nice feeling. <laughs> well, talking of, you know, flexing and adjusting, and also you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of some of the, the passion that you have for the role is around, you know, finding solutions to challenges. Obviously, the last few months have thrown a couple towards the oil and gas industry. What do you think the kind of the last six months will mean for, you know, either Chevron as an organization or the industry as a whole? 
so the past few months have certainly been tough and uh but that's that's also part of what keeps it exciting and fresh and you know i think as we during a market downturn the playbook in our industry that's not a secret the key is around how you execute that the winners are the ones who make the right choices balancing short-term cash flow and long-term value and at chevron we've made the right choices coming into this crisis some tough choices and we intend to exit in the best position among our peers. We, we're constantly facing new challenges and that's what draws a lot of us here. We know there's going to be ups and downs. I'll tell a little story. So I started a new role in January. I had been working in the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico for the last three and a half years, managing our exploration programs there and loved what I was doing, felt very confident, had a few discoveries under my belt, great uh, relationships with co-owners and partners, so felt very secure. And then took move to the mid-continent business unit to learn the unconventional business, really experienced this very, very fast-paced side of the business that I had really had no exposure to up until this point. So I came over in January and uh, started getting my feet wet a little bit, and then March came along. And our activity levels that I was expecting plummeted, and we our budgets were cut because that's what happens when you have, that's the beauty of a flexible asset, is uh, when you need to balance short-term cash flow, you are the swing arm there. And so the learnings that I've gotten from this role are not at all what I expected. I've gotten a bit of the unconventional asset development experience, but really so much more, Amy, in terms of how you plan those pivots that happen super fast, how you test your strategies and shift those strategies. But really the biggest learnings have been around that empathetic leadership space, building those relationships now virtually, really building that community of trust within my organization, making sure that we're focused on longer term value and enabling that efficient ramp up when Chevron comes back and says, okay, mid-continent, turn it back on, that we're able to do that better than ever, more efficiently than ever. And so that experience of leading through crisis, working through redesigning organizations, delivering tough messages, revamping processes, really leveraging agile and new ways of working has been a huge learning for me. So I think as we're going through these tough hurdles in the industry, recognizing that there are some silver linings, you know, never waste a good crisis, right? As the old saying goes, there's always going to be some good that comes out of it. And if you come into it with the right balance sheet, with the right mindset, you're going to weather the storm and you're going to come out stronger on the other end. For sure. I think I think everyone can probably understand <laughs> those feelings and have felt the same way. I think I, you know, kind of the last couple of months aside, even in you know regular times for the oil and gas industry, there are role changes so frequently. And I think that is is a fantastic experience in terms of having to consistently adapt to working with new teams in different ways, in different places, etc. What do you think other industries can learn from the way the, the oil and gas industry is organized in that way? 
That's a great question. I think other industries can learn from the way we collaborate, especially around health and safety things. You know, there's very broad sharing in that regard. So I think we do a great job as an industry learning from each other, whether it's with direct sharing or with, with watching each other and doing competitive performance benchmarking to make sure that we can figure out strategies and understand what's going on. That's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about our industry is the different players have different personalities. And even when you think you have one player figured out, they might pivot in a very different direction and you scratch your head a little bit and then you regroup and do some analysis. So I think what we can learn together as an industry is really exciting and how we come together and collaborate when times are really tough is another thing as well. Sitting obviously as I am in Europe, I, I, you know, I, I don't know whether the kind of the buzzwords are, are different in the US, but over here, you know, there's so much conversation around the energy transition. Um, for Chevron in particular, is there the same buzzword around that? And if so, kind of what was the, the outcome of that and kind of the, the workings around it? And if not, do you see that changing? Amy, definitely something that's first and foremost on our minds. Our energy transition focus is on lowering our overall carbon intensity cost efficiently, increasing renewables in support of our business, and investing in breakthrough technologies. So more than a buzzword, a very much a focused part of our organization going forward. You know, as more energy and more forms of energy are required to power the world forward, we remain focused on improving those current energy energy sources and scaling future solutions to deliver a greater human benefit with less environmental impact. You know, that's one of the things. So we talk about moving through roles quickly. I am moving through my mid-continent role very quickly and will be joining a new team this fall that's in our corporate strategy and sustainability organization. So very different role for me, really my first non-technical role, not working really with any earth scientists. And one of the things that I'm most excited about in that new role is getting more into the sustainability space, working with our energy transitions managers there. It's such an important aspect of our strategy. So my role will be the general manager of corporate strategy. So I see the energy transitions and corporate strategy as hand in hand as our company evolve going forward. So I'm really excited for this opportunity to bring my technology and experience in multiple asset classes to the table in that role to partner in the energy transition space and continue to move us forward. That's awesome. That's going to be hugely different <laughs> to what you've been hugely doing. Hugely different. Previously, yeah. Do you have any anxieties about it? <laughs> I do, Amy. Of course, <laughs> of course. You know, it brings challenges in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I think I talked earlier about the weight. So I'm out in front with this role. It's a very visible role. So I put that pressure on myself personally. It's a different circle of people than I normally interact with. So uh, I'll be quickly focused on building new relationships with a new set of peers while I'm drawing on my existing relationships, because I think this job is based in San Ramon in our corporate headquarters. And a lot of the technical work is done in business units, which are largely based in Houston or other parts closer to where the physical work is done. And there can be a little bit of a feeling of a gap between San Ramon and, and Houston and other parts. And so as I feel some anxiety moving 
moving into new roles like that, I also try to, to flip it and think about what I'm bringing to the table. And I think that my experience in lots of different asset classes, in different phases of projects, leading through things that have worked well and things that haven't worked well and things that we thought were working at the time, but in hindsight didn't work well as the external environments changed, all of that comes to play and brings some good perspective for this strategy role. So I think as I approach it, I feel I can kind of calm myself down from that anxiety level, really focusing on what I bring to the table and then putting together a plan of what I think are the important relationships to establish to help get the support that I'm going to need in that role to be successful going forward. Fantastic. Well, I was going to ask you kind of as a closing question, you know, the one career goal that you still have on your to-do list, maybe that was it. <laughs> I don't know. But, no, but... Amy, I've still got a long time. <laughs> no, There's <I> always <laughs> more. <laughs> I know. So, what, so what, yeah, what's the big, the big goal still on the list? You know, so a big goal for me is to have a true profit and loss role. So in we talk about P&L roles or profit and loss, where you're really in charge of managing an economic outcome that's very, very clear. So I, at Chevron, I'm still seeing not as many women in those roles as I would like to see. We see a lot of women in staff roles and more men in those, quote, beefy roles that have profit and loss. So I would like to have that experience, to have that P&L responsibility, to manage books, to manage that portfolio. And so that's a very big one that's on my to-do list. And I think it would be great for me and for my career, but also as an example to other women in Chevron that these roles are open for all of us and uh, should be part of their career development plans as well. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Fantastic speaking to you and look forward to seeing you in your new role and so much luck as well. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate it. It was great to catch up.